Well, let's look to God's Word together. If you have a Bible there in front of you on your lap or on your phone, however you like to access it, please feel free to open up to John chapter 6. Also, if you don't have a Bible of your own, there should be one in the pew there in front of you. And if you do not have a Bible and need one, we've got some blue paperback ESVs. You can grab one on the way out. We're going to look at John chapter 6 as we continue on in our long study through this really weighty and dense gospel account. Remember, we're in the gospel, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the biblical narrative says someone is here right now. Remember the Old Testament says someone's coming. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say someone's here right now. The whole rest of the New Testament says someone's coming again. And so who is that someone? It is Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. And so we are looking at the life and ministry of Jesus this morning. Feel free to use the table of contents if you don't know where John is. Look and you'll open up. You see Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If you get to Acts, you've gone too far. And we're going to look at John chapter 6. We're going to cover verses 1 through 37. I know that's a lot. We're actually going to just read verses 22 to 37. And so um, we're going to get to that here in just a moment. But as you're turning there and opening up, as we kind of wake our brains up and, and come to the, to the Word, I want us to think about something that many of us have in common. You probably have one in your pocket or your purse right now. It's your phone, right? Think about these things that we carry around with us. You probably have one in your pocket and you wonder how you ever lived without it. I mean, think about all the amazing things that this phone can do. You can find your way with GPS. You can take HD pictures and videos. You can, you know, stream live TV. I mean, it's just amazing what these phones can do. And just not to mention the fact that you can anywhere in the country make a phone call and it magically beams it up to a satellite somewhere and then magically beams it down to another person's phone while you're both moving around and it's able to keep those phone calls. It's amazing what those phones can do. And I want you to think back to that day when you got that shiny phone. You remember you take it out of the box and you take the little plastic wrapper off and you're wondering all these car, you know, these cables and you th- probably threw away the quick start guide because you're like, how hard could it be to use the phone? And then you probably wish you'd never thrown that away. You, you remember those first few days, you couldn't leave it alone. You were constantly staring at it. You probably did the whole like wipe it on your shirt thing. You may have bought an overpriced case for it. Now, I want you to think about that phone and then fast forward a few years. And the phone still works great, but now a new one comes on the market, and suddenly the phone that you just desperately had to have couldn't hack it anymore. And suddenly you're like, I don't want this old thing anymore. I want that cool new one. And so suddenly you just realize that you are moving on and constantly looking for the next thing, bigger, better, faster. And the problem is it's not just with our phones. We're like that with everything, aren't we? Clothes, cars, computers, relationships, sports, whatever it is. Regardless of your age, even if you don't have a cell phone, you probably have something that is shiny and new and you just couldn't wait to get your hands on it. And then after a while, it suddenly loses its luster and you move on. What it shows us is that we're never satisfied. We, it's not a matter of possession. It's not a matter of having stuff. It's a matter of the heart. And if we're honest with ourselves, we've never really been satisfied a day in our lives We're always hungry for the next big thing, and as we see that manifest in our life, what that actually is is just the spiritual hunger that we all have at the heart level that's kind of erupting in a tangible way in our lives. 
And the truth is, we all have a big problem. We, we try everything we can to try to fix it. And so this morning, as we look at John 6, it's a reminder that we're all spiritually hungry. And because of that, we need to look to Christ and Christ alone for full satisfaction at the heart level. And in, for a quick a bit of context, we're going to quickly cover a chunk of the narrative to get to the heart of the passage in verse 22. But after his encounter with the, with the Jewish religious leaders that we looked at last week, Jesus travels across the Sea of Galilee. And at this point, his popularity and notoriety, the word about him has gone around, and there's a big crowd that follows him wherever he goes. And at the beginning of chapter 6, in verses 1 through 12, there's this very public miracle, the feeding of the 5,000 men. Verse 10, with five loaves and two fish. And the amazing thing about that, when you look at that detail, is we think feeding of the 5,000, verse 10 tells us that's just the men. It doesn't count the women and the children that were obviously there as well. So you take that number and easily double it. And there you have this crowd that Jesus feeds miraculously. And in verse 13, we're told that 12 big baskets of leftovers were collected. And what this shows us is that it points to the abundance of the kingdom of God and the abundance that Christ came to bring into the world. And in verses 14 and 15, the people were so amazed that they wanted to forcibly make Jesus king, but he retreated to the mountains to avoid the mob. And in our main text today, we find Jesus on the other side of the seven-mile-wide Sea of Galilee. The disciples had left in boats the night before, and Jesus had, once again, miraculously walked on water to meet them during a rough storm. You see that in verses 16 to 22, 21. And so the crowd wakes up to find Jesus gone, and so they sail to Capernaum to find him. And so let's pick up in verse 22 as we read our text this morning. Let's give attention to the reading of God's Word, starting in verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, Well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask the Lord for help as we look to his text this morning. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask, Lord, for your help as we look to your word. We're thankful that it's true, every bit of it. And Father, we pray that you would help us to receive it by faith, 
Help us to understand you more. As we understand you more, we understand ourselves more. And Father, please use the folly of preaching, O Lord, to shape and change our hearts by your Spirit. And Lord, please be with me and give me strength and give me wisdom. We pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we look at this text this morning, the big question that I want us to think about is, how does this passage help us understand that hunger that we all have in our hearts? How does it help us understand that more? And how does the gospel answer that? We're going to look in th- at three ways this morning. These will be our main points. Number one, we're going to see our problem. The second thing we're going to see is our plan. And then finally, our promise. And so if you like alliteration this morning, guess what? Today's a good day. Our plan, our problem, our plan, and our promise. And so let's look at that first point, our problem. Look at verse 25 where the crowd comes and poses the question, Rabbi, when did you come here? And as you look up at verse 14, the crowd had been fed and they were convinced that Jesus was the prophet like Moses and they were coming to make him king by force. And this is a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 18 verse 15 where Moses is speaking and he said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. And you think, why in the world would John include this in his gospel account? Why would he include this particular reference and Jesus being referred to as the prophet? Why is this in there? We see in verse 4 that the Passover was being celebrated. This is a very important religious festival and a a celebration and a reminder of kind of the national pride. This is a big deal. And there was this prophecy surrounding the coming of the prophet greater than Moses that had been heard for centuries And it made the people hopeful for release from Roman occupation. Remember, the the people of God were under Roman oppression at the time, and they were crying out, who is going to come and and remove this boot from our back? And the people wanted a physical kingdom that would come in and defeat the Romans and bring prosperity and beat back the oppressors. In verse 26, Jesus responds to this, saying, You're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And the crowd wanted to crown him king so the gravy train would run. We're like, look at what this guy's done. This guy's obviously powerful and we got to make him king. But Jesus came to do something different. He came to establish a spiritual kingdom. And also at the same time, he knew these people's hearts. And the crowd was driven by their felt needs. But Jesus knew at the heart level what they really needed. And we see the crowd reacting with their stomachs this way, and we think that they're crazy for doing this. But think about a time when you've been incredibly hungry. It may be right this very moment. And you can't think about anything else. The hunger that you have, you can't think about anything else other than, I have a hunger problem. And, you know, we've kind of, re- we've kind of invented this word, we get hangry, like hungry and angry at the same time. And you think about that moment where it just affects your entire body and your mind. Let me tell you a story that happened a couple of years ago. Don't worry, I asked my wife for permission to tell this story. Rebecca and I had been driving all day with the kids to South Carolina for Thanksgiving. And so at the time, we were, I think we were living in Virginia, and so this was like a nine-hour trip to come see my parents. We'd been driving all day, and we were in the home stretch. And we had been driving through a rural area in South Carolina, and Rebecca had already been really hungry for over an hour. And we were trying to make it to Clinton, South Carolina. I knew what was there because that's where I went to college, a tiny little town in the middle of nowhere in South Carolina in the upstate. And we finally got there, and, and we, the only thing that we saw when we got to town, the first thing that we saw was a Taco Bell. 
And so this is a picture of desperation, how desperate this situation was, because Rebecca hates Taco Bell. And we saw it, and she's like, I don't care. <laughs> Just get me something to eat. I will, find, I will find something on the menu. I mean, this is desperate, y'all. And Rebecca was just barely hanging on, and the line was long. And there was one thing on the menu, and she quickly scanned it, and she said, okay, I think I can make that work. And so we get up there, we get to the board, we order that, and they said, sorry, we're out of that. <laughs> you can imagine as Rebecca was hungry and then also upset and disappointed, and she just absolutely came unglued. Just completely lost it. After a few minutes of all us all experiencing Rebecca's out-of-body experience, <laughs> I was like, okay, hang in there. It's going to be all right. Let's see what's further down the road. And we drove down the road a little bit. And thankfully, by God's grace, there was a Burger King. We whipped into the Burger King, ordered a Whopper. Like, just give me the first thing. Give me that combo, number one. I don't care what it is. Just bring it out. And after a few bites of Whopper, everything was back to normal. Life returned to the land. You think about that story, you might have a similar story in your own life where hunger has driven you to desperation, but then all of a sudden when your stomach is full again, your whole attitude changes, you're satisfied, you can think clearly again. And in a similar way, when we think at the heart level, this spiritual hunger that we have drives us to relentlessly search for meaning and for truth. We feel like we have this missing piece at the heart level, and we're doing whatever we can to try to fill that. And so we're starving for truth and satisfaction, and we're subconsciously looking for it anywhere and everywhere. And we're asking the questions like, why am I here? What's the big point? Is this all there is? How can I really know anything? Does anything really matter? We're asking these big questions that come bubbling up in our hearts. And believe it or not, whether you believe it or not here this morning, we are spiritual beings made in the image of God. Sin has twisted this image, but our built-in spirituality makes us shaky and restless and we'll do anything to fill ourselves as quickly as possible. And so we come up with our own solutions to the problem. It's our second point, which is our plan. So we see the problem, we have this problem at the heart level that we're deeply unsatisfied. And whether we believe it or not, we're starving for truth. And we're looking for truth and meaning in anything that we have, but yet we come up with our own plans, don't we? Look again at verse 27, and Jesus says, Do not labor for the food that perishes. And I want you to ask yourself this question, if you've ever made this statement or thought this statement before. If I could only get fill in the blank, then I will be finally happy. I bet all of us have either uttered that or at least thought it in our own minds. If I could only get whatever it is, stuff, relationship, whatever it is, then maybe I'll finally be happy. What ends up happening when we think that way? The shiny thing or the new circumstance, whatever it is, quickly loses its luster and it ends up in the garage, the back of a drawer or a closet or being discarded. And rather than deal with our spiritual hunger, we make up our own solutions. We feel that hole that sin has punched in our hearts, and we try to smooth over it with anything and everything. We feel that hole that's in us in a heart level, and we're trying to fill it. And so we use relationships, maybe getting into the right social circles, money, looking at inappropriate videos on the internet, clothes, athletics, physical fitness, academic achievement, etc., 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 etc. 
We're looking to anything. We're putting this list together of this, these things that we feel like will somehow spackle over that, that hole in our heart. C.S. Lewis, in his great little address, The Weight of Glory, said, our, our Lord finds our joys not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea, he says, we are far too easily pleased. That quote has stood the test of time and has been used many times because it speaks directly to our problem. We are too far too easily pleased and we're fooling around with these things that will never last when this endless hope of eternity is laid before us. God says to us, do it my way and live. And we say, hey, thanks God for the, uh, for the heads up. Thanks for the life tip. But I think I'll do it my way instead. And look at verse 28. The crowd's response is really telling. What do they say? They say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What must we do? We have the same dialogue in our own hearts, don't we? We don't simply want to rest in Jesus. We want to work for it. We want to earn it. Our little inner Pharisee comes out. We said, it can't, grace can't be this free. The gospel can't be this free. What do I need to do to earn it? How can I earn this somehow? We hear the free offer of the gospel and we don't like it because it tells us that we can't do anything except simply trusting and receiving Christ by faith. And we say, but what do I need to do to earn this thing? Verse 29, Jesus responds, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him and whom He has sent. And this is offensive because we tell ourselves that we have to have it all together and that we can make it happen on our own. And our plan to self-atone and save ourselves only stacks weight on our shoulders. And Jesus knows our proclivity towards this pointless, endless striving. And what He offers us as an answer one of the ways that we see this answered in Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, where Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is life. Simply put, what Jesus offers is not a checklist of things to do. What he offers is himself. Come to me, find satisfaction in me, find rest in me, look to me. And look again at Jesus' words in the first half of verse 27 where he says, Do not labor for the food that perishes. And then now look at the second half of that verse. Where he says, But for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Remember last week we talked about those magical unicorns that exist in our midst, the notaries that we, we don't know even exist until it's time to find where we have an important document that needs to be notarized and then we scour the countryside looking for these magical people? Because what do they have in their possession? A seal, right? They have been officially commissioned by a higher organization to place their seal upon this document saying that yes, this is the genuine article. We have that language here. It says, God has set his seal upon his son. It said, he is the genuine article. He is my one and only son. And Jesus answers our struggle to fill ourselves with the food that will not perish by pointing us to himself. And look at verse 30. The crowd asked for a sign so that they might believe. They're like, well, show us a sign. 
don't they have a short memory? Don't you remember just a few verses up? Jesus had just miraculously fed thousands of people. And it's amazing when we think about this, the day before, Jesus are like, well, what sign do you show us that you are the real, th- that you are the real deal, that you are the Son of God? He's like, don't you remember? <laughs> I literally fed thousands of people with a little bit of bread and a fish, and there was so much left over. We gathered baskets of abundance. Do you not? I mean, that literally happened yesterday. It's amazing when we think about how short their memory is, but then aren't we quick to forget all that God has done? We're just like those people. We think, oh, how foolish they are, but yet we forget all that God has done and how He has worked in our lives. We forget it like that. In verse 31, we've got to remember the Passover is being celebrated. This marked the beginning of the most significant event in the history of Israel, the exodus from Egypt. And John chapter 6 begins to show how this whole event pointed forward to Christ and to show how Jesus fulfills his role as the true Passover lamb. It's kind of a hinge point in the gospel account. Especially as we start looking to the cross, John starts making these connections and saying, you know that whole Exodus account with the blood of the lamb and the the spirit of death passed over? You know that whole Passover lamb thing? Guess who the real one was? Guess who it points towards? Remember, Old Testament, somebody's coming. says John is saying, that's Jesus. That whole thing pointed forward to what Jesus would do as the spotless lamb. His blood covering over. He says, look and see. And what did God give the, give the Israelites when they were wandering around in the wilderness? He gave them manna, this like bread from heaven. And the people weren't satisfied with the miracle of abundantly feeding over 10,000 people. They needed something bigger and better. Bigger, better, faster, stronger. Just like today. Verse 32, Jesus responds to their lack of faith. Look at what he says in verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. It says, Moses didn't do that. Y'all are looking and exalting Moses. Moses was just a conduit. My Father is the one who actually provided for you. And now the true bread... That whole thing, that the whole Exodus account, that manna from heaven, guess what? I'm the true bread. I'm right here in your midst. In verse 33, in contrast to manna, the true and genuine bread gives life to the world. And the people don't understand the spiritual nature of Christ's words. Because look in verse 34 as the crowd responds. You can almost kind of hear the sarcasm as Jesus says in verse 33, For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then they say to Him, Oh, sir, give us that bread. We want that bread. You think that you're better than Moses? The amazing thing when we think about this response is, For centuries the Jews had offered sacrifices and had lived under the weight of strict law observance. And Jesus now comes on the scene and starts stirring things up. And their plan was to make Jesus king so that he could meet their physical needs and build this real kingdom and beat back the Romans. And our plan is similar, isn't it? In many ways, you think about how, how the people of God are treating Jesus. They're basically seeing him, and we've talked about this before, like Jesus like a vending machine. You come and you put your sacrifices in the slot and you go, okay, give me that. And we push the button and we expect the prize to pop out. That's how the people of God were, were dealing with Jesus at the moment. Like, this is the guy. If we come to him, we, look, we've done all of our law observance. We've been keeping the law of God, and so we want this kingdom. And so we put our sacrifices in, and we say, one freedom from Roman oppression, please, and we push the button. 
But that's not how Jesus works, thankfully. Often we'll seek to fill our own desires until things get difficult, and then we'll call on Jesus to make everything right and then move on. Basically, we use Jesus as the last place that we go. We try to fix it ourselves, and we try to do it ourselves. And then we'll call on Jesus to make everything right and then move on, and the cycle starts all over again. And our plan leads to an endless cycle, right? We've got a problem, we try to fix it, we do it ourselves. If our plans fall through, then we'll ask for Jesus to come and help. And then we just start all over again. That's typically how our plan works. But, as we'll see in our final point, Jesus comes to offer something even better than that. This is our promise. So we've seen our problem at the heart level. We'll see how we typically try to fix it. Our own plans to self-atone for ourselves. But now we see, finally, there's a greater promise. And it is our promise as the people of God. I want you to think about the stark contrast that exists here. Our plans define significance and self-worth and striving after worldly things. And then look at Jesus' promise in verse 35. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the first of one of seven I am statements that we will look to and we'll see pop up in the Gospel of John as we move forward. And Jesus' response is basically, feed on me and live. Jesus constantly reminds us that he is the genuine article. He's the only one that can fill our deepest longings. And so Jesus tells us that he's the true bread of life, and that life comes when we feed on him and not the bread that perishes. Basically, he says you're looking to all of this stale bread that's only going to disappoint you in the end. That shiny thing, that promotion, the, the idea of like, well, if I can only reach retirement, then I'll be happy. Or if I can only get married or have kids or get that promotion or make enough money or whatever it is, fill in the blank. And we think if I could only get that, then I would be happy. But yet, in the end, we realize that it ends up just as dry, stale bread because it was never really meant to satisfy us at the heart level. And look at the verbs Jesus uses in verse 35. He says, Whoever comes to me and whoever believes in me. And this complete satisfaction for our spiritual hunger is only found in Christ. And I know many of you are sitting here thinking, you're like, yeah, right. That car is pretty cool, though. That house is pretty cool. That money can buy a lot of happiness. Yes, maybe so in the short run, but you can't take it with you into eternity, can you? And so Jesus is basically saying, set your eyes on something that is eternal. Set your eyes on something that will outlive. Set your eyes on something that can actually bring salvation. Not just something that you think will bring you short-term worldly comfort, but will bring you actual eternal satisfaction at the heart level on into eternity. Now, am I saying there's anything wrong with driving a cool car? No, I hope you give me a ride in it. Is there anything wrong with having a big house? No, I hope you invite me over. Is there anything, is there any problem with having a lot of land with possibly a bass pond full of really big fish in it? No, nothing wrong with that. I hope you invite me over. There's nothing wrong with any of that stuff. Having a great job, having a family, getting a promotion, none of those things are bad in and of themselves, but the problem comes when you take that thing and you put it in the ultimate place in your heart. Then you've made an idol out of it because basically you're worshiping that more than you are worshiping God, and that's where the problem comes in. We see everything as a gift from the hand of God, and we place those things in the proper order that we worship God and God alone. And then all those other things are gifts from his hands. Again, there's nothing wrong with having those things. But if that's the thing that you say, well, this is the thing that gives me worth. This is the thing that gives me value. Well, then I'll finally be happy. Pastors are just like this. I'm not 
I'm not not guilty of this. You know, I think, well, if I can only have a full sanctuary, if I could only have whatever it is, fill in the blank, then I'll be seen as successful. That's folly. I'm just glad that I have Jesus. I'm glad that even one of you shows up on a Sunday morning. I think that's amazing, just even that one would show up who's not related to me that has to come, right? (laughs) All right, let's land the plane here. <clears throat> the promised Savior has entered the world and he promises us the, he promises the hope of eternal life for those who believe in him and trust in him as their Lord. And this is no empty promise. Isaiah 55, 1 through 2, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Simply put, Jesus Christ alone is the only cure for our tired, broken, unsatisfied hearts. And the amazing thing about the gospel is you can't earn this living bread. You can't earn it. It is freely given by grace. It is freely given and received by faith alone. And this is the hope of the gospel. You come to Christ with nothing and you gain everything through him. You come to Christ and say, I'm not clinging to any of these things. I have nothing in my hands. And I come to you and ask for help. And it's given to you by grace. You come with nothing. And you gain everything through Christ. Even with that amazing promise, the crowd still doesn't get it, right? Because look at what they look at Jesus' response in verse 36. It says, But I said to you that you've seen me and yet do not believe. And we all struggle with sin in our hearts, and we all strive for the food that perishes. We're all broken, deeply unsatisfied people. But here's the good news. Here's the good news, church. Jesus Christ died for broken, messed up, unsatisfied people like you and like me. And he offers himself. Why? Because we're so awesome? No. Because he loves us. Because he loves us. Jesus has laid down his life for broken, messed up, deeply unsatisfied people like you and like me who are shaking our fists at him. So that his enemies could be made friends by faith. So if you are here and you do not trust Christ, I would plead with you as a minister of the gospel to flee from these worldly things that you are looking to as this might finally be the thing that will bring me heart rest and satisfaction. Let me warn you, it won't. Anything other than Jesus Christ and the hope of the gospel, anything other than that will just lead you more tired and more worn out. It's like on a treadmill. You can't get off. Jesus is asking us to come and to rest in Him. Get off the treadmill. Stop striving for those things. Look to Him and Him alone and find rest for your souls. Again, we said this past week that prayer doesn't offer us a less busy life. It offers us a less busy heart. That's what God offers at our heart level, a less busy heart. The hope of the gospel... The hope of God's redeemed people is verse 37. This is the thing that we can sink our teeth into as we think around and we think about how deeply unsatisfied we are and the, the folly of our own plans, but the promise that God gives us. Look at verse 37. As Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. That is the hope of the gospel. We come to Jesus in our brokenness and our shame, and it's all that the Father has given to me. We're going to talk about that next week. Who are the all that He's been given? We're going to talk about that next week. But He says, come to me in in your brokenness and your shame. 
and all that come to me by faith, not bringing their effort, not bringing their checklist, not bringing their own righteousness, those who come with empty hands and by faith trusting in what Christ has done. He said, all of those who come to me like that, I will never cast out. They will be safe in me until the very end. That's a true and living hope. And so Christ is calling us to come to him, to trust in him, believe in him. Christ is calling us to find satisfaction in him alone. He is the true bread of life. And now, you want a good closing illustration? Your bellies are probably starting to rumble right now because you're hungry, aren't they? As your bellies now begin to rumble from hunger and you look forward to lunch, you're like, is Dave ever going to sit down? I want you to let that rumble remind you of the true hunger that you have at the heart level. And I want it to point you and remind you of what can truly bring satisfaction in your life. And that is the person and work of Jesus Christ and the gospel. Let that remind you of what can really satisfy us at the heart level. Regardless of the circumstances, come what may, you can know that you are safe in Christ. And you can say, as we sung earlier, yet, yes, it is finished and all is well. And you can rest in that promise. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, as our bellies rumble, as we are hungry, as we look forward to lunch, Lord, we do pray that you would remind us of the spiritual hunger that we have at the heart level. And you will remind us, O Lord, and you will help us to see, maybe for the first time, that you and you only can satisfy us. Lord, forgive us for all the ways that we are looking to the trinkets that the world offers and they're holding it out in front of us and saying, this is the thing that will make you happy. Just trust in this. Forgive us for all the ways that we have looked to something other than you for satisfaction and for worth and the thing that makes us matter. Father, help us to flee that worldly idea. Help us to trust and rest in you alone as you say, I'm the, I am the true bread. I am the bread of life. Help us to feed on you. Help us to look to your word. Help us to be reminded of your gospel and your love and your grace and your mercy. And Father, seal that deeply into our hearts as you have said that Christianity, we heard D.T. Niles once said, Christianity is just one beggar telling the other beggars where he found the bread. And so Lord, help us to realize that we come to you in our brokenness and our shame. And as we come to you by faith, we're reminded that as we come to you, you will never cast us out. And you provide for us through all the circumstances of life, in joy and pain. Lord, when in times of ease and in times of struggle, you walk with us as our good shepherd providing for us. And we're thankful, O oh Lord, for your faithfulness towards a bunch of faithless people like us. And help us to be reminded of the sweetness and goodness and the undeserved nature of the gospel. And help us to glory in you and you alone. Not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. These things we ask in Christ's name. Amen.